Welcome to Archaeoed, a podcast about ancient civilizations in the Americas. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Barnard, and I've been an archaeologist all around the Americas for over 20 years now. In this podcast, I'm going to talk about ancient civilizations that I find interesting. Sometimes it'll be overviews, sometimes it'll be very in-depth information, basically anything I feel like talking about, because this is my podcast and I'm just having fun with it. I hope you enjoy it too. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and let's get started. Season 3, Episode 1, The Fanged Deity. Hello everyone, and welcome to Season 3 of Archaeoed. As you may know, I'm still relatively new to the podcast world and figuring out how to do things. At first, I thought I would make each season a calendar year, and that's why I started Season 2 in January. But then I realized that I'm going to have to take breaks every summer, because that's when I'm always doing my traveling. So now, my new plan is to have Archaeoed seasons run from September to May, nine episodes per season. I guess that's just a programming note, and it's subject to change, because I'll remind you that this is my podcast, Bolden to No One, and I'll do what I want. But back to this episode. To kick off Season 3, I've decided to talk about my favorite supernatural being, the fanged deity of South America. What I'll explain to you here is actually my own theory, one that began in graduate school over 25 years ago. I've been pursuing the fanged deity ever since, and I'm happy to say that I'm more confident in his identity and origins now than I've ever been. I've had a lot of theories over my career, and frankly, they weren't all gems. Some crashed and burned. But of all my theories, those surrounding the Fang Deity are my favorites. Actually, I'm in the process of writing a book about it, but I've been stuck on Chapter 2 for over a year now. I'm hoping that this podcast episode will call the muse back to me. So, where to begin? Well, I guess at the beginning back in 1994 in Linda Sheely's art history class on shamanism. She brought in a parade of guest speakers to the seminar. Carolyn Boyd spoke on Wichol ceremonies in Pecos rock art. David Whitley spoke on shamanism in global cave paintings. And Johannes Wilbur shared his experiences with shamans in the Amazon. And that's just to name a few. It was a crash course in shamanism, what it is today, and how to see it in ancient art. Then it was the graduate student's turn. The final seminar paper was to be our thoughts on some aspect of shamanistic art in the ancient Americas. I chose pre-Incan art as my topic. Even though I was pretty firmly a Mayanist at this point in my career, I still had a great affection for South America. This class of Linda Sheely's had taught me a few key universals to look for when hunting for the evidence of shamanism in ancient art. First, all shamans, be they healers, magicians, priests, or warriors, use the ability to contact the supernatural world to wield their powers. Second, 
to contact that supernatural world, they must enter an altered state of consciousness. Most of the time, but not always, that involves the use of hallucinogenic drugs. Save a weird toad in Mexico, those drugs all come from plants. Third, shamans commonly have the ability to transform themselves into animals, usually big, tough animals like jaguars or bears. Fourth, shamans are often conduits of communication between this world and the supernatural. They're not so much actors, but rather mediums through which supernatural spirits and forces act. So with these shamanic principles in mind, I started looking through the vast corpus of pre-Incan Andean art. It helped that the University of Texas at Austin had the Benson Library, still today the largest collection of Latin American literature in the entire world. I spent months in those stacks, flipping through catalogs of Andean art. Moche was my favorite, but Chavin, Paracas, Nazca, Chimu, Wari, Tiwanaco, Lambayeque, I looked at it all. And as Sheely loved to say, I wasn't poisoned by a bunch of preconceived notions. I really knew very little about the scholarship regarding this art. I was looking specifically for things and patterns. Things like people interacting with plants, supernatural-looking scenes, and people that looked like they were transforming into animals. And boy, did I find it. The first thing I noticed was a humanoid figure with fangs, claws, and big round eyes that appeared repeatedly in the art of every single culture that I studied. Even back in 1994, I quickly learned that this creature was depicted in art spanning 3,000 years and from Colombia to Chile. This was the kind of human and transformation figure that I was looking for. He looked a bit different from culture to culture, so I put together a list of traits to track him through time and location. His main traits were his fangs, claws, and big round eyes. In many, but not all, the depictions, he also had snakes coming off of his body, especially his waist and head. In early studies at Chavin de Huantar, he was given various names, like the principal deity, the feline deity, the staff god, but I decided to go with Elizabeth Benson's term, which is the fang deity. Aside from what he looks like, there are also a few objects that he's commonly carrying or wearing. He's most elaborated in Paracas and Moche art, and in those cultures he is everywhere. He often holds a mushroom-shaped knife called a tumi knife, and if he's holding that in one hand, he's likely carrying a severed human head in the other. In Moche studies, when he's got the knife in the head, he's called the decapitator deity. But clearly it's still the fang deity, he's just killing people now. The other diagnostic trait associated with the fang deity is a headdress with a little feline face on the front. I don't think that's the deity wearing a headdress, but rather priests or shamans who worship him. Especially in Moche art, but also in Nazca and Tiwanaku art, his face also shows up in a variety of animals. 
It appears on llamas, foxes, crabs, sharks, owls, spiders, even corn. Old literature sees these things as deities in a pantheon and names them things like the crab deity or the shark god. But I'm convinced that they are all the same deity, just manifesting through a variety of living things, including humans. However, here's another very important thing about the Fang deity. His feline qualities are clearly jaguar, and jaguars don't exist on the coast or in the high Andes. The highlands have pumas, but he's not a puma. He's a jaguar, and that means he's from the Amazon. The same goes for the snakes that emanate from his body. There are no snakes in the Andes, and there are very few on the coast. They, too, are from the Amazon. So what are Amazonian animals doing in the religious art of the dry desert coastline? The average Joe Moche person probably never saw a jaguar in his entire lifetime. This got me wondering where the fang deity came from. Where are the oldest depictions? That led me to the ancient site of Chavin de Quantar. For decades, archaeology viewed Chavin de Quantar's culture, called simply Chavin, as the Andean mother culture. For Mesoamerica, it was the Olmecs, and for Peru, it was Chavin. But starting in the 1990s, archaeologists began finding even older cities along Peru's northern coast, especially in Norte Chico and the Supe Valley. Those cities were ignored early on because they didn't have any gold or ceramics. But then the light bulb went on over archaeologists' heads. Wait, no ceramics? Those might be really old. And they were. Chavin de Huantar starts at earliest 1500 BCE. But the sites of Norte Chico and Supe, like the now famous Corral, are more like 2700 BCE over a thousand years earlier. But the trouble with looking for the Fang deity at those sites, and others of varying age but still older than Chavin, was the complete lack of art. The older coastal valley cities were stone-built with beautiful, circular, sunken plazas and U-shaped enclosures, but virtually no public art. The cities of Sachin and Sachin Bajo had carved stones showing warriors and even a few severed heads, but no fang deity. So his first appearances, at least as far as I can find, start with the Chavin people. And Chavin is neither on the coast nor in the Amazon. It's high in the Andes, about 10,000 feet above sea level. But look at the clock. It's time for my first commercial break. When I return, we'll visit the Fang deity at Chavin de Quantar. Did you know that family travel has the incredible power to shape our children's worldview and create lasting memories? In a world where representation is often lacking, it's essential for our children to see themselves reflected in every aspect of life, including the stories we tell about travel. 
introducing the Travel of Legacy podcast, where we're rewriting the script by celebrating the diverse voices of Black and Brown family travelers. Each episode of Travel of Legacy is a testament to the enriching power and the joy of exploration in Black and Brown communities. So journey with us and subscribe now. Hey folks, yes, it's still me. But this fall, I think I'm about to have my first ever Not Me commercial, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, I'll just keep promoting my own stuff. In 2022, I'll be leading two trips to Cambodia and the ancient Khmer temples of Angkor, one in April and the other in June. We'll be intensively studying ancient Khmer astronomy, religion, and culture. Along the way, we'll explore Angkor, Kulen Mountain, and the beautiful Lake Tonle Sap. I still have a few spots on each trip to fill, so if you'd like to join me, check out the details at my other website, ancientexploration.com. That's ancientexploration.com. Come join me. It's going to be a great adventure. Okay, I'm back and ready to talk about Chavine de Huantar. Chavin de Huantar was like no place before it. Architecturally, it was similar to the earlier coastal cities. Stone-built, sunken patios, and U-shaped enclosures. But it wasn't on the coast. It was way up in the Andes. And also, unlike the coastal cities, its walls were covered with elaborate carved images. The subjects of those carvings were also not from the coast or from the highlands. They were all Amazonian animals. Jaguars, snakes, even a crocodile. Its location is telling. It's situated in the path of least resistance between the coast and the Amazonian rainforest. Six days walk in either direction brought you to the coast or to the jungle. If you were looking for the easiest route between the two, it passed through Chavin de Huantar. And considering the blend of art and architecture, it clearly seems like a meeting spot for the two regions. The main temples, called the Old and New Temples, have labyrinths of long hallways inside. At the back of each of those hallways were found piles of objects, ceramics in some, animal bones in others, stones in yet others. The conclusion was that these were offerings brought by pilgrims, yet more reason to see Chavin de Huantar as a meeting place for far-flung groups of people. Chavin de Huantar was covered in art panels and freestanding stone monuments, but almost all of the most famous depict the Fang deity. The Lanzon, the Raimundi stone, the Teo obelisk, a smaller panel in the new temple, and others depict him again and again. But to my surprise, the traditional studies see each of those as depicting a different deity. The principal deity, the staff deity, the caiman deity, and so forth. But each have the same traits. The fangs, the goggle eyes, the claws, the snakes emanating off their body. They aren't a Chavin pantheon. They're a single deity shown in different contexts. And by the way, I should have said this before, I'll put links to a lot of these images in the show notes on archaeoed.com. 
I know it can get hard to follow this without images, so they'll be there. So at this point, I have this jaguar-like deity, assumably from the Amazon. But unlike the coast, there are no contemporary archaeological sites to compare from the Amazon. So where do I go from there? This is where Shelley's shamanism class came in so handy. It introduced me to the religions of a variety of modern Amazonian tribes. And since the general understanding of their traditions is that they've changed very little over hundreds, maybe even thousands of years, that seemed like a good place to seek context for the art at Chavin de Quantar. There are actually hundreds of tribes, both contacted and uncontacted, still in the Amazon. But there's also a surprising amount of overlap in their belief systems. One big one that stood out to me right away was the tobacco shamans of the Warao and other tribes. They smoke tons of tobacco, snort ayahuasca, and frequently transform themselves into jaguars. The people say that the nicotine oozing from their pores smells like jaguar musk. The Corindero shaman of the Dezana people also take ayahuasca, which is a powerful hallucinogen from a vine. They take it in order to speak to the spirits of the plants in the rainforest. They use flutes and singing to call down the spirits and say that the birds are their assistants. Cosmologically, they believe that the world is full of spirits and supernatural beings, but there's only one creator deity. The Dezana call him Viho Mase, and the jaguars are his emissaries on earth. When Amazonian shamans take ayahuasca, they snort it in a powder form up their noses, or someone shoots it up there with a blowgun. It causes an immediate and harsh reaction of snot pouring out of their noses in long strands. The altered state of consciousness comes on fast and hard. So now I go back to Chavin de Huantar, built about 3,000 years earlier. The images of humanoid jaguars definitely seem to relate to Amazonian shamanism. But then two other elements fell into place. One is the back wall of the complex, the one facing the direction of the Amazon. It was covered in what we call tenon heads, stone-carved faces protruding from the wall. The faces range from fully human to fully jaguar, with stages of transformation in between. But even more explicit, some have long strands of snot pouring out of each nostril. Are those people turning into jaguars after snorting ayahuasca? Well, I think so. And then there's the panels in the circular sunken patio of the old temple. The bottom register is a procession of jaguars. The upper register is the fang deity again and again. But now he's carrying a cactus. What's that about? Well, that cactus is something that ethnobotanists are very familiar with. It's the hallucinogenic San Pedro cactus. Modern-day coranderos and brujos around the coastal city of Trujillo drink it in a brew to contact the spirit world. That knowledge sent me down a whole other ethnographic rabbit hole, which provided insights into the vast corpus of moche art, which also comes from around that same Trujillo area. But more on that when I get to the moche. Back to the Chavin, where what we have is a very old, 
pseudo-primordial site that's literally and figuratively a cultural crossroads. It has architecture borrowed from the coast, but religious ideas that appear to have an Amazonian origin. It was almost certainly a trading outpost, but the piles of offerings from afar in its labyrinth suggest that it was also a pilgrimage site. And pilgrimage sites are where people go to seek divine inspiration. Chavin de Huantar was in full swing at 1000 BCE, but it fell apart about 500 BCE. During that same time frame, we see their iconography and assumably their ideas spread down and along the coast. Contemporary to Chavin culture, and quite possibly the same culture in a coastal variety, is the Kupasnike culture. They built temple complexes in stone and adobe, just like the coastal civilizations had done for centuries. But the big difference was, now they had the Fang deity. One of those Kupasnike complexes, called Waka de los Reyes, went so far as to cover its temple's front facade with five-foot-tall images of the Fang deity's face. It was all over the front, again and again. The Kupasnike also pioneered a very particular ceramic style called a stirrup vessel. They had a spherical base and a two-pronged spout that looked a lot like a horse saddle stirrup. Cultures for centuries after would use that very same diagnostic ceramic form. Those stirrup vessels were another place where the Kupasnike could display their newly adapted religious ideas. There's a fantastic one displaying a face split down the middle, half human and half fang deity, the classic shamanic transformation scene. Perhaps my very favorite Kupasnike stirrup vessel shows a jaguar lounging amongst a patch of San Pedro cactus. It's like they were saying, and then the jaguar made its way to the coast. Rafael Larco, a sugarcane plantation owner who pretty much pioneered Peruvian ceramic studies in the 1920s, looked at all the Kupasnike pottery images and referred to their belief system as the feline cult. But that was just the start of the feline cult, as he called it. I'm going to take my final commercial break, but then when I return, we'll talk about how other cultures represented the Fang deity and how those depictions further clarify his relationship with those who worshipped him. The Ancient Maya Calendar I'm fascinated by it, and though I've been studying it for decades, I still learn new things about it all the time. I call it ancient, but I and literally millions of modern Maya people are still tracking it into modern time. Towards that end, I've created two products to help people better understand it. My annual Maya wall calendar and an iPhone app called simply Maya Calendar. Through these tools, you can figure out today's date or tomorrow's or a Maya date thousands of years in the past. The app will even calculate your Maya birthday and tell you about your personality traits and destiny according to modern Maya daykeeper priests. The Maya Calendar app is available through iTunes, but both it and my annual Maya wall calendar are available through my website, mayan-calendar.com. That's mayan with an n-calendar.com. Check it out. 
Hello again, I'm back. Let's keep following the Fang Deity. Actually, I've got way too much to explain in this final 10-minute segment. That's why I need to write a book. So before I run into a time crunch, let me say that we can track this Fang Deity for another 2,000 years. Through Paracas, Nazca, Lake Titicaca, Chimu, Wari, all the way up into Inca times. But I'll start chronologically with the next major culture, the Paracas people. They existed in a few coastal valleys about 250 kilometers south of Lima. Time-wise, they flourished from 900 BCE until 0 CE, so partially overlapping with Chavin, which was hundreds of miles to the north. Paracas is most famous for their amazing textiles. Each piece has elaborate, multicolored images weaved in. And what was the predominant scene? You guessed it, the Fang Deity. Now, the context in which these textiles were discovered matters, so let me take a moment to describe it. Hidden in the desert floor, well apart from any above-ground structures, were these bell-shaped shaft tombs, discovered first by looters and later by archaeologists. In each shaft tomb were piles of mummy bundles, dozens of them. Each bundle held a single individual wrapped in multiple textiles. In some cases, it was hundreds of textiles in a single bundle. The bundles also sometimes had gold jewelry and ceramics inside. They were a virtual Christmas present for archaeologists. Being all bundled in with a single individual, we can securely say that the objects and textiles had meaning in that individual's life. So now to the images weaved on the textiles. There were some that were just geometric designs or other things, but the vast majority have a singular theme, and that theme is the Fang Deity. They're easily recognizable as the same as the ones in Chavin images. The fangs, the claws, the big eyes, and some, but not all, even had the snakes coming off their waists and heads. But the Paracas figures had more. In their hands, they would hold mushroom-shaped tumi knives and severed human heads. The heads would also sometimes hang from their belts. They often also held striped sticks, which I still, honestly, don't know what the heck those things are. The other major element that they all have is a peculiar headdress with a little smiley face and long lines protruding off the sides and top. These new object elements, which aren't there in the Chavin art, are also clearly in Moche art centuries later. The headdress in the Moche art is much more realistic and clear. It's definitely a little jaguar face. Knowing that, and looking back at the Paracas headdresses, you suddenly see that they too are feline, and the long protruding lines are their whiskers. I thought I might be going too far with that connection until I found a Paracas figure with an entire jaguar on his head. Then I was certain. But the most important new elements were the severed heads and the tumi knives. What was that? Again, Amazonian tribes provide the answers. 
Most people have heard about headhunters in the Amazon. Those stories are true. Certain tribes were headhunting when the Spanish arrived, and some are still doing it. The Hivaro are the most famous headhunters, but multiple tribes just east of the Andes are known to have done it. A few brave ethnographers have questioned those tribes as to why they do it, and the answers are fascinating. Many of the Amazonian tribes are locked in perpetual feuds with one another and a cycle of ritual killing. When a Havaro warrior kills an enemy, that person's soul is released and can become a malevolent spirit called a Mwisak. To prevent that, the enemy's head must be chopped off and the orifices quickly plugged. Then the gross process of then shrinking that head traps the soul inside, and now it must do the bidding of the head's owner. Those heads are not just war trophies, but supernatural weapons. A powerful warrior shaman might have many heads, basically giving him a supernatural posse. Hivaro run ropes through the tops of the heads to hang them off their belts in battle or from poles outside their homes like guard dogs. Now, when we take this ethnographic gem back to Paracas and look at their textiles, what do we see? Severed heads, held in hands or hanging from belts. Even the rope attached to the tops is there. What's more... In the culture following Paracas, Nazca, we find the same art themes and real severed heads with rope holes through the skulls clustered in their group cemeteries. But the Paracas images, and even more so in the later Moche images, got me wondering, are these images of the deity himself, or humans in costume, or what? If it were your garden variety shamanism, I would say they're all humans transforming into jaguars. But of the hundreds of Paracas examples, no one is fully turning into a jaguar. For that matter, no one is fully human looking either. They're all very standardly this anthropomorphized jaguar figure. I don't think it's the deity himself either, because they're depicted in groups. I mean, I guess we have things like the Garden of a Thousand Buddhas as a possible precedent, but you never see a pack of Jesuses in Christian art. Or would that be Jesai? We'll never know, because that doesn't happen. I also don't think it's costuming, besides the headdress. Nowhere does it look like they're wearing masks or fake claws. So, the one idea I couldn't as easily dismiss was that the Paracas figures were the Fang deity manifesting through human priests or shamans. And when I contemplated that angle, that maybe like Zeus, the Fang deity could manifest in any form or perhaps could channel himself through his emissaries on earth, then all the other odd things with his face started to make sense. Why is his face not just on humans, but on animals, fish, birds, insects, and even plants? Because, as the creator of all life, he controls it at will. Those aren't other gods in an Andean pantheon. There's no such thing as the crab deity or the spider god or even the staff god. 
They're all manifestations of the Fang deity. Well, as I feared, I'm getting to my own self-imposed time limits on these episodes, and I haven't even gotten to the Moche yet. And they're the ones who teach us the most about the Fang deity. So, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to dedicate my next episode purely to the Moche and explain it all there. For the rest of this episode, I'll jump up to Lake Titicaca and wrap up with my ideas about Inca religion. At 12,500 feet above sea level, Lake Titicaca is the highest navigable lake in the world. And it's beautiful. I highly recommend seeing it if you can. When the first stone architecture was built there in the first millennium BCE, it was two separate clusters, the Chiripa culture on the south end and the Yayamama culture on the north end. Both areas, but especially the northern city of Pucara, carved images of jaguars, snakes, and other Amazonian animals. So just like northern Peru, we see an Amazonian connection from the start. But by far the biggest civilization to develop at Lake Titicaca was Tiwanaku, established just south of the lake. Now there are persistent suggestions that Tiwanaku is over 10,000 years old, but responsible archaeology says that it lived between 100 and 1,000 CE, hundreds of years after Shavin and Paracas. Nevertheless, the Fang deity dominates the art from Tiwanaku. The portable art of Tiwanaku, like ceramics and textiles, has a very geometric style, and though it's sometimes hard to make out, the face of the Fang deity is the predominant theme there. When it comes to sculptural art and architecture at Tiwanaku, it bears some striking resemblances to that of Chavin de Quantar. For one, it has a sunken patio with tenon heads protruding from the walls, just like Chavin's back wall. I don't know of any other similar examples between the two sites. Second, the Ponce Stila in the middle of Tiwanaku's Kalasasaya complex. It's a carved image of the Fang deity for sure. The goggle eyes, the teeth, the claws, even the snakes coming off his head and body are there. He's holding two objects at chest level, one in each hand. A carving of the deity at Chavin de Quantar shows him in the exact same position. Third, and most compelling, is the figure at the top center of Tiwanaku's famous sun gate. Many say he's the sun god, others Veracocha, but he is definitely the fang deity. And holding two staffs out from his body, He's a dead ringer for the Fang deity on Chavin's Raimundi stone, the one referred to as the Staff God. The two even share the corona of snakes coming off their heads. At Tiwanaku, people suggest those are sun rays, but look more closely. They're snakes. So to me, this evidence is pretty significant. Here we have two major cities separated by 600 years and a thousand miles, making virtually identical depictions of the Fang deity. His worship was Pan-Andean and went on for thousands of years. Now to wrap up this episode, I'm going to jump over the Wari and the Chimu, but believe me, they were all about the Fang deity too. 
We think we know a lot about the Inca because the Spanish met them at contact. But in terms of religion, they either weren't being told or weren't listening. Probably both. If you look at Wikipedia, it lists over 20 Incan gods. And I'm not slamming Wikipedia. I like them. The list they present is all vetted in academic publications. But I've been saying for years, that's wrong. I believe that everything on that list, save Veracocha, is a supernatural spirit or force of nature, like an elemental. They are not deities. If we read past our Western preconceived notions of native religions, we can see that the Inca explained that Veracocha is the creator deity and that he brought forth all the others, not as his equals, but to do his bidding on earth. The Inca creation story states that the world began as a watery, dark place, and then Veracocha stood on the island of the sun in Lake Titicaca and called forth the sun and the moon. They weren't his equals, they were his creations, as were the stars, the rivers, the mountains, and all life on earth. The Inca did worship things, including Inti, the sun, the Pachamama, which is the Mother Earth, and other things, but that didn't make them deities. The Inca also practiced ancestor worship and venerated their mummies. Didn't that make their ancestors deities? Of course not. And yes, starting with Pachacute, the Inca said their rulers, the Sapa Incas, were the sons of the sun. But did they actually say the sun was a deity? Look again. And that same Pachacute was fabled to have found a reflective metal disc that told him how to create the Inca Empire. Guess what he saw when he looked into that disc? Not the sun god, but a young man with jaguar features. The Inca never depicted Veracocha for us. They said he was unknowable. But a big golden plaque once hung in their main temple in Cusco, the Coracancha. It was a cosmogram of the Inca world. The Spanish melted it down, so now all we have is a rough drawing of it and a modern model that hangs in the Coracancha today. It shows the surface of the earth with people and farms, then the sky with rainbows, lightning, stars, and the Milky Way. Then above that are the sun and the moon. But at the very pinnacle is a big oval, way larger than the rest, the informant who drew the picture at contact said that that was Veracocha. He was at the top of the Inca cosmogram, not the sun. Now, also at first European contact, there was a big pilgrimage city just south of Lima called Pachacamac. It wasn't an Inca city, but since it was a place famous for healing, they let it remain as a pilgrimage spot. Pachacamac was the coastal name for Veracocha, and that's confirmed in the Chronicles. And the head priest of Pachacamac had a staff that was topped by an image of Pachacamac itself. There's a replica of that staff in the museum in Pachacamac today. And guess what he looks like? Well, it's the Fang deity. Okay, well, I could rant on with my many lines of evidence and probably will through the next episode. But I have to wrap this one up. So, in summation, 
I believe that Andean religion, from Shavin times up until European contact, was monotheistic. There were many spirits and supernatural forces, but only one creator god, the one I call the Fang Deity. He had many names. The Principal Deity, the Decapitator, the Feline Deity, Iayapek, Pachacamac, Veracocha, but in all cases, he's the same. Sheely told me back in 1994 not to say that, and to temper it as a Principal Deity. And I'll post my original paper with her written comments to that effect in the show notes. But I've been tracking this Deity for 25 years now, and I'm more convinced than ever. The part that still eludes me is his origin. He came from the Amazon, but where and how long ago? I watched the recent advances in Amazonian archaeology with bated breath. All right, well, that's it for this episode. I'll continue this Fang Deity filibuster next month. Thanks for listening. This is Ed, signing off. You've been listening to Archeo Ed, a podcast written, produced, and distributed by me, Ed Barnhart. If you liked what you heard, then subscribe, like, share, comment, and do all those other things that I'm supposed to ask you to do. If you didn't, then don't do any of that stuff. And if you really liked it, support Archeo Ed through my Patreon account. I make these podcasts for free, but I am not opposed to financial support. Until next time, thanks for listening. All rights reserved. Copyright 2020.